Why hello there you. Before you get on and listen to this latest episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you have enough Myrtleade in your life? If the answer is no, did you know that you can get exclusive access to two whole previous seasons, dozens of exclusive episodes and a catalogue of minisodes? All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash Myrtleade spelt M-U-R-D-E-R-L-A-I-D-E and join our Patreon family. For as little as five bucks a month, you get more Myrtleade than your strange mind can handle. The more you pledge, the more you get. Seriously, guys, that is like a single cup of coffee per month and you help support me as a creator and you help keep this podcast an ad-free zone. Because, you know, there has to be one space in our lives that's ad-free. Okay, on with today's offering. As always, I'm your host, Anne, and I'm not a journalist or an investigator. This tale of woe, I tell you, can be researched and fact-checked through my list of sources. I have no direct access to anything other than what you do, you know, with the internet and all. Facts in this case are as accurate as they can be to the best of my knowledge. This is the finale to a series that we've been looking into the Lint Cafe Siege, and the perpetrator, Man Haron Monas. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you may be super lost, so skip back at least one. The last two episodes are standalone, and sorry this was released in two parts on one day, folks. It's just because the file was too big to upload to my network in one hit. So without further ado, seamless segue, right? But do you expect Seamless from me anymore? Do you? Is this your first day? This podcast contains graphic depictions of violence, salty language and poor grammar. This may also contain the odd political rant. Don't like it? Make your own fucking podcast. Sources for today's episode are the ABC program Four Corners, two-part special simply titled The Siege, from the SBS News website How the Siege Unfolded. From The Guardian, Sydney Cafe Siege, A Timeline of Events, an article from Claire Bloomer at the ABC News titled Man Monis's Girlfriend Amira Drudis Sentenced to 44 Years Jail, an article from The Australian by Natasha Beater from the 17th of December 2014, Deranged Monis Granted Citizenship in 2004, Arash Azizi wrote an article for Monato One called Exclusive, The Sydney Siege Hostage Taker Had Fled Iran After a $200,000 Fraud Case. From the Aussie Leader, Siege Gunman Dropped Off Watch List. 
from the Sydney Morning Herald by Tim Elliott, an article titled Martin Place Gunman, Deranged, Deluded and Dangerous by Lorna Knowles for the ABC News, Sydney Siege, Man Behind Martin Place Standoff was Iranian man Haron Monis, who had violent criminal history. The Wikipedia page on the Sydney Lint Cafe Siege, the page on man Haron Monis, the Murderpedia page on man Haron Monis, and reels and reels of interviews with survivors of the siege, and the 60 Minutes special sim- simply titled Siege Survivors, Part 1, 2, and 3. This is Part 7. Madman Monis. Anyhow, I got ahead of myself a little in the last episode and got a little ranty. So yes, hostages are talking to negotiators on behalf of Monis. You know that I'm just going to run a timeline of events here from the beginning of the siege and then we'll go back and discuss some details. So at 8.22, Monis enters the cafe. He sits down, orders tea and cheesecake and then moves tables. He approaches waitstaff and asks for the manager. At 9.44am, Mona sits down with Tori Johnson, produces a shotgun, and orders the doors be locked. Tori calls triple zero, Martin Place is evacuated, as are the Sydney Opera House and the US Consulate, and some of inner Sydney schools are put on lockdown, no one in or out. People in the area of Hunter, George, Elizabeth and Macquarie streets are told to remain indoors and stay away from windows. Channel 7 is evacuated except for one lone cameraman. The law courts down the street and the state library and two major banks shut shop for the day. By 10am police have an emergency centre set up in Hyde Park. By 11am operational commander Mick Fuller has been on the phone to hostages on behalf of Monis and he's struck a deal. He approves negotiations for the release of half of the 18 hostages in return for Monis being allowed to talk on the ABC radio. The lead negotiation team commander overrides this and decides to go back on the deal that has been made with a deadly criminal because it conflicts with the policy not to negotiate with terrorists. Between 11 and 3, the standoff seems to have be just that, a standoff. Not much happens in or out of the cafe. All we can see on the TV is uh, armoured police with riot shields and full body armour creeping in closer and closer to the doors of the cafe and then retreating slightly. There are a few press releases in which police say negotiations are going well. 3.37pm. While we are all glued to our screens and while Monis is distracted, Two figures run low out the front door with their hands up. After figuring most of the day has gone by and there's been no movement in negotiations, hostages John O'Brien and barrister Stefan Balfoutius had weighed their odds. They'd made a run for the front door, taking their fate into their own hands. Officers outside were clearly not in any way ready for the hostages to start saving themselves at this time and it took everyone by surprise. At home, I had a giant fuck yeah fist pump. 30 seconds later, from a side door, one of the Lint Cafe employees, Paolo Vasalio, who was spurred on by the action of the two other escapees, made a dash unnoticed by Monis to the side fire exit into the arms of tactical response officers. At 4.58pm, two women inside the cafe are eyeing the door. 
One sneaks up to it and quietly slides the bolts out of their housings. 19-year-old Lint Cafe worker Jared Morton Hoffman sees the two women are trying to escape and he starts to make noise on the other side of the cafe to distract Monas. The women slowly duck down and sneak out of the glass doors. We see live as two women clad in black flee the building in tears. Both are Lint Cafe employees. Joanne Bay and Ellie Chen escape into the arms of Tactical Operations Unit officers. You can watch the surveillance footage from the the lobby of the building. It's available on YouTube. It's a hard and tense watch. The actions of the women are very slow and deliberate. Now police have had the first three hostages for over two hours and they're all saying Monas is going to kill people. You need to go in and rescue the others. Also, they later say that they had seen no bomb and saw no evidence of a bomb. At 5pm, negotiators call Monas. It's answered by the hostage, Marcia McKyle, and they indicate that they now know Monas's identity. Finally, five hours after that cluey homicide detective had called with his identity, this information has filtered through to negotiators. They called Monas Sheikh Haron, and he is in a really heightened state of agitation at that. By 5.55pm, Monas is frustrated that his message is not getting out. He is not getting an audience with the Prime Minister. The hostages suggest that it's time to start uploading to Facebook and YouTube. The situation inside the cafe is becoming increasingly agitated. Man Haron is pacing like a caged animal and waving his gun at people. He's beginning to really start ranting. The mood in the cafe is increasingly desperate as hostages now figure that no one is coming in to save them. Also, on the news, they're saying five hostages have escaped and Man Haron is fuming. Jared Hoffman steps in again, like way to go, teenage boy, and he convinces Man Haron that it was only three that have escaped and that the reporters have it wrong. So in this, we can see that Monas doesn't even know how many hostages he's taken and things are really starting to fall in part inside. At 8.38pm, hostage Marcia McKyle begs negotiators to turn off the Christmas lights because they are really pissing off Manharon. Police manage to get a listening device inside the cafe under the cover of darkness. Here I want to stop and point out that during the course of the day, Police have rejected offers of help from many who knew Monas. From his lawyer, remember Manny Constantidis, he offered to start negotiating and talking to Monas to try and de-escalate the situation, as did many leaders from the Islamic community, including the Grand Mufti of Australia, Ibrahim Abdu Muhammad. It seems that Monas only wanted airtime with the Prime Minister And as that was not going to happen, these other people decided that, you know, they would offer their services to police, that maybe talking to a man, some of them actually knew him, that they might be able to get further with him. Police refused all of these offers. Monas is beginning to run out of patience with the lack of negotiations. At 10.30pm, Osgrid is assembling a team to swish off the Christmas lights and they come in and they are sent home by police. At 10.30pm, 
police hold a sort of mini conference between themselves and it is officially decided they will continue to quote contain and negotiate. So I'm going to go with negotiate in theory, but they're not actually negotiating. You know, they're going to stay the course and sure as shit, the rest of the hostages, they may just free themselves, right? To say that they are negotiating is a stretch as no single negotiator ever spoke to Monas directly. Perhaps this is where some of the Muslim leaders could have come into play and actually gotten someone he respected on the phone. Maybe this would have lured him into conversation. So the top tactic of negotiation is usually to connect and no one's doing that. They're choosing not to connect with Monas. They don't negotiate with terrorists. The decision to continue to have a hands-off approach is based on the recommendations of the unqualified psych that we talked about last episode. And his opinion is that because Manharon hasn't killed anyone yet, he doesn't have the stomach for it. Hostage Marcia Mikhail was doing a lot of the negotiations on behalf of Monis. She said after his request to speak to the Prime Minister was refused, quote, it was then I knew that there were not going to be any negotiations and I was just left there. They were waiting for him to kill someone or shoot something so that they could come in. There was nothing proactive about that operation. Nothing. End quote. At 12.30am, four calls from a hostage, Selena Winpay, to negotiators go unanswered. Let's just pause here. So what are you too fucking busy right now to pick up your phone? Are you having a mid-siege nap, maybe? People, how utterly alone and helpless they must have felt in there. The cops aren't even answering their fucking calls. It's almost like they wanted to make Manharon so pissed that he would shoot people, right? So Selena ends up calling Triple O when she gets no answer the fourth time. And she says to the triple O operator that she will be shot if the Christmas lights are not turned off. At 1.43am, Tory Johnson goes into the toilet and he sneaks in his phone. He texts his mum. He says he is so scared and that he loves them. And that Monis is super pissed off and he wants to release one hostage in good faith. But they have to start negotiating. The commanding team tells his mum not to answer the text message. How heartbreaking that must have been. He was huddled alone in the loo, waiting for an I love you, that sure as shit she wanted to send him back, but police prevented it. At 2.03am, Mona starts to move the hostages around the cafe, and six make a break for it and take the opportunity to flee. Mona fires shots out into the foyer after them. You can see... The final moments of this happening on YouTube. Fair warning, it's pretty hectic and it's a hard watch, especially knowing what comes next. So that was at 2.03. At 2.11, Fiona Ma runs out the door and Monas fires at the kitchen and then seeing he's lost all control of the situation. Monas is reeling. Two minutes later, because he has lost all control of the situation, Monas directs Tory Johnson to his knees in front of him and aims the gun at the back of his head. He fires a single shot, killing the mild-mannered, 
fun-loving and respected man instantly. A sniper opposite, in the building opposite has watched the murder of Tory Johnson in his scope and he reports hostage down and police immediately storm the cafe. There is this roar of noise, epic flashing. It's like fireworks going off in a bottle. Police enter and throw 11 stun grenades. Hostages hit the floor and cower behind chairs and under tables. The room lights up with gunfire, lights up. It's incredible to watch as police discharge a total of 22 shots from M4A1 carbines into a cramped concrete space filled with civilians and one lone criminal. Monas is shot in the head and falls. Bullets and fragments fly everywhere and rebound off surfaces and then fly again. 22 rounds are fired in just over three seconds. The footage is wild, uncontrolled, and it's apparent how incredibly dangerous this police raid was. Monas killed one man with one shot. Police shot Katrina Dawson, who was huddled behind a chair laying flat on the floor with the hail of bullets raining down on her. She was a lawyer just out for her morning cup of joe, and she died at two in the morning after a day of utter terror. Pregnant hostage Marcia McKyle was shot in the leg by a stray police bullet. As was 75-year-old hostage Robin Hope. She was shot in the shoulder and her daughter, who had just been out for lunch for a catch-up with her mum, Louisa Hope, was shot in the foot by police. A police officer involved in the raid was also shot in it with a ricocheted bullet in the face. So there's like this moment of stunned stillness after that three seconds of terror. And then the scene erupts into a flurry of furious activity. There are ambulance, police, journalists all over the place. Dazed hostages are like filmed leaving the building with glassed over eyes. Two would leave in body bags. The fallout from that December morning has been long and far-reaching. People looked into the eyes of each other with fear and often hatred. Muslims were attacked on the street, in public transport, and became unsafe. It became unsafe for people to ride on public transport alone. The judge who had given Monas parole received multiple death threats. From really early that morning on the 16th of December, Sydney siders began to arrive at Martin Place in droves. A makeshift memorial of small notes, flowers, cards, it began. Over days, almost the entirety of Martin Place was piled knee-high with flowers, teddy bears, notes, cards and letters from distraught Sydney siders. Martin Place was dubbed the Field of Flowers. This field grew until it took over the surrounding landscape in front of the cafe It was piled on stairs and down alleyways. Police officers were photographed weeping and placing flowers and cards. The Prime Minister was photographed. The Prime Minister who was advised not to speak to Monas on air during the siege. But yeah, he felt like an ass by this time. An estimated 110,000 bouquets of flowers were placed in Martin Place. Muslim, Christian and Jewish leaders all held combined services for the victims and for Sydney in general. 
Isis claimed responsibility for the attack without any evidence Monas had any direct contact with any member of Isis. After her death, the Katrina Dawson Foundation was established, with our Governor-General, Quinton Bryce, being one of the founding members. The Katrina Dawson Foundation website states that they are finding, funding, mentoring and inspiring young women. The website has a page simply titled Remembering Katrina. In reading through this page, it was easy to see that Katrina Dawson was beyond amazing, beyond smart and beyond empathetic. She was a hard-working woman, wife and mother. She volunteered in legal and children's charities. She worked in a high-ranking law office and she raised kids. She still made their birthday cakes. She worked hard and she laughed lots. She was clearly an ethical and highly principled person who gave her time and her energy to causes she believed in. She loved and she was loved in return. Her death left a hole in many lives. Her friends simply called her train. At the request of his partner and family, a memorial fund in the Everyday Hero section of Beyond Blue was set up in the name of Tori Johnson. It is a charity that helps those dealing with anxiety, depression and mental illness. The first donation into this fund was $51,000 and it came from Lint. There were reviews by police and task force and all kinds of shit. Then there was an inquest that began in 2015 and the findings were finally released in the end of 2017. In short, the inquest found that police tactics were lacking and that they should have stormed the cafe early on to shorten the ordeal and potentially save lives. I don't know about that, given how they stormed it in the end. I think we should all be glad so many hostages had escaped on their own before that happened, lest they be shot by police. There were lots of questions about whether or not this is classified as a terrorist attack, if ASIO should have been more on top of Monas, and why he'd been given bail. By now, I think all of those things are kind of irrelevant. One of those things is important on reflection, you know, so how do we stop this happening again? One of the chief findings of the inquest was that police failed to try and negotiate with Monas because he was a terrorist. That negotiation was the only weapon that they had to de-escalate the situation and it was not used. It also pointed out the request of several high-ranking Muslim clerics who actually knew Monas and wanted to help could have helped resolve the situation peacefully. The fact that no one tried to make a relationship with the man holding the hostages goes against police protocol in hostage situations. The fact is, Monas killed Tori, but police killed Katrina and injured everyone else on the scene. I think the real thing that could have happened here that did not would have been an overhaul of bail proceedings in this country. Monas was a perpetrator of family violence. He was an accused killer and a multiple serious sex offender, yet he always managed to make bail. He was on a good behaviour plot when he plotted to have his ex-wife murdered. Nolene Hasen-Powell is the unspoken victim in this crime, which is why I dedicated a whole episode to her. She was Monas's first real victim. 
She was stabbed 17 times and set alight by Amira Drudis in a brutal act of retaliation by Manharon for the perceived slights against him. Yet he walked the streets. Yet he somehow got a gun. Yet he had access to the internet to see ISIS put a call out. And he murdered again. And he terrorised a nation because he continued to make bail. In the end, he got the spotlight he so desperately craved. And look, here we are still talking about him. I think he would have loved that and that kind of makes me sick. And what of the murderous bitch who claimed to be his wife? You know, even though he already had two other wives at the time. After her first hearing, Amira Drudis had her bail revoked. She went to jail. Then there was a trial for Nolene's murder and Amira was convicted and sentenced to 44 years jail with a non-parole period of 33 years. Last year, she appealed against her sentence, saying that she was under the influence of an abusive partner in Manharon and that he was the true bad guy, right? She just did his bidding. (laughs) Bullshit. Let's remember, she had a full day alone to prepare for the murder and ample time to back out. She committed an incredibly bloody and sustained stabbing, followed by setting her victim on fire. Then she played house with Nolene's kids until they were taken away. Like, you are responsible for you, psycho. Anyway, the courts must have bought her bullshit because her sentence was reduced to 35 years with a non-parole period of 26. She is still a practicing Muslim behind bars. Let's hope she stays there for a while. Anyone involved in this case has had their lives changed forever. Man Haran Modis had the Midas touch. Except instead of gold, he spread hatred, fear and death. He will be remembered for what he did. And in the end, wasn't that all he was after? A little recognition? And as they say in the business, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. Sleep with one eye open and call the cops on all of your dodgy neighbours.
Hello again, it's me, and can I ask you a favour? If you liked this episode of Murderlade or any previous episodes, please take a moment to rate and review. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or alternately, head on over to Facebook and rate the show at the Murderlade the Podcast page. Every rate and review helps other strange ones find us and join the family. Oh yeah, and I totally mean that in a creepy Manson family or the Aussie cult, the family kind of way. Thanks for listening.